I want to thank our sponsors, Athletic Greens, who created AG1, one of the most innovative packets of supplements, including 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. These ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I personally started using Athletic Greens and love the way I feel in the morning after I drink it. And I no longer have energy crashes throughout the day. And the best part is that it's delicious. The founder of Athletic Greens created AG1 because he experienced a ton of gut health and ended up on a complicated and expensive supplement routine to recover. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash yasmine. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash yasmine, Y-A-S-M-E-E-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Connie Zweig, a retired therapist and writer. She's known as the shadow expert. She's the co-author of Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow, and is the author of Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality, and her new best-selling book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, extends her work on the shadow into midlife and beyond and explores aging as a spiritual practice. I am so excited to welcome Connie to the show. I have been reading Romancing the Shadow and have just been mind blown from it. Um, And we'll also dive into, of course, her um, newest book, The Inner Work of Age, which I think is uh, an important inquiry for a lot of folks. So welcome to the show, Connie. Yasmin, thank you so much for having me. So Connie, I'd love to just dive right in um, since our audience is uh, pretty mainstream and is maybe unfamiliar with some of these concepts. I'd love to just define a couple terms at first uh, and, and really just talk about what the shadow is and why the shadow is something we often don't talk about in culture. Okay. So um, shadow is a term that was coined by the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, um, who was one of the founders of psychology at the time of Freud. And he referred to the personal unconscious as the shadow because it's outside of the light of our awareness. So there's the conscious world and then there's the unconscious world. And there's a lot that takes place in the shadow. If you ever um, notice what happens in one of your dreams, you can begin to get a sense of that. There's a whole unlived life going on in the unconscious shadow. So many people go through the lifespan without ever recognizing that, you know, we're aware of what we're aware of, and we think that that's all there is. However, every once in a while, something from the unconscious shadow erupts into our lives. 
It might be a pattern in a relationship that's destructive or disruptive. So, for example, someone criticizes um, their spouse over and over again and doesn't know why they do this. Or it might be an addiction. Someone has a behavior that's compulsive and out of their conscious control. And it feels like it can't be tamed by anything that they can do consciously. And this is because it's arising from the unconscious with a different set of needs than the ego's needs or the conscious mind. So there are many ways in which we meet the shadow in our daily lives. Um, for people familiar with psychology, you might know the term projection. In a projection, we unconsciously attribute to somebody else something that we're not aware of in ourselves, something that's in our own shadow because it's unacceptable to us. It's denied or forbidden to us. And so we attribute it to somebody else. It might be anger and aggression. It might be sadness and passivity. It might be um, sexuality, or um, it could be any trait that we actually can't see in ourselves. Now, in the case of age, it can be ageism. You know, look at that person. She's so old. She's frail or weak or dependent or powerless. And that is all projection of our internalized, disowned age. So we meet the shadow in many ways, also, as I said, in our dreams. Um, and let me just say, I'll take a moment to talk about how the shadow forms. So when we're small, we're growing up, we're looking for the love and approval of our parents and adults around us. And we learn very quickly that certain feelings or traits or behaviors are approved of and bring us that love, and certain traits and behaviors are disapproved of, and they're shamed or they're criticized or they're punished. And so as we um, begin to observe this process, we learn unconsciously to bury those forbidden things into the shadow. So let's say in your household, anger is bad, your parents can't tolerate it. So you bury a certain amount of your anger um, out of sight, in the closet, in the darkness, in the shadow. And that anger builds a charge. And then what happens? We grow up, we become adolescents, and suddenly that anger starts bursting out. We don't know where it comes from. You know, maybe it looks like rebellion or reactivity. But it's that buried anger because we learned in childhood that that was not permissible. We, this also happens at midlife. Many people experience at midlife a kind of identity crisis. And what emerges is what was forbidden and denied and buried in the shadow. And so they completely crash their lives. They burn down their marriages and their careers in order to start again. Wow. Because, you know, because something is erupting from the shadow with a message. And they only respond to it externally. 
They don't know shadow work. They don't know how to respond to it internally. So this is a natural human developmental process. All of us have an ego, the conscious self that we present to the world, and a shadow that carries all of the material that is not allowed to go into the ego. And then we meet that material at certain moments in our lives later. So, uh, Connie, how do we make ourselves more conscious of the shadow dynamics? Is it through pattern recognition, um, through our relationships? Like, how how do you start the process of sort of uncovering the shadow? Well, you know, you're reading "Romancing the Shadow." Um, it's very hard to do <laughs> this quickly and simply, but if you um, if you begin to notice an automatic dislike or even repulsion to certain traits in yourself or in other people, that's pretty much one signal mm. that you're confronting an aspect of your shadow. So let's say you don't like people who are judgmental. I would just suggest that you take a breath and look at yourself. Tune in to your own self-talk, your inner dialogue, and notice, are you ever judging other people? Mm. Is that going on inside of you but making you uncomfortable and so you're rejecting it in somebody else? So one way to tune in is to, to yourself is to notice what are you saying to yourself on an ongoing basis? And then, as you said, you may notice that there are patterns to that. You might notice that you have self-critical commentary going on. You're telling yourself you're not good enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not successful enough. You're not young enough. You're not old enough. Whatever it is, you're not thin enough. And that is what I would call a shadow character. That is a part of you that has internalized this critic, probably from outside, probably from a parent and a critical voice, and you've internalized it. And it all happened unconsciously, so you're not aware that you're now doing that to yourself. And this can lead to depression to addiction, to self-medicating, to overeating, um, to self-hate, you know, to low self-esteem. So it's really important stuff. It's not small stuff. Um, the, for people who are not so oriented to their thinking, notice your feelings. See if there's a pattern to the feelings that come up. When do you feel shame? When do you feel sad? When do you feel angry? What is going on at those moments that's triggering those feelings? And for people who are more body-centered, you can do the same thing with physical sensations. When do you notice your shoulders tighten or your solar plexus tighten or your throat close? Mm, wow. And so with my work, um, which we call shadow work, as you begin to notice 
that there's a repeating thought and feeling and sensation, you have three dimensions of what I call a shadow character. Let's say it's the critic. So then you know every time the critic comes up from the shadow, you know what you're saying to yourself, what you're feeling, and what you're sensing. And you can give that um, an image. What does the critic look like? And you can give it a name. Okay, we're calling it the critic. And then what happens? When it erupts again, you can say to yourself, oh, wow, that's the critic shadow. And then you have a moment of choice. Are you going to buy into it? Are you going to believe it and have the consequences, the same consequences that you've always had? So if it's self-critical, you know, the same consequences of feeling badly about yourself. Or if it's critical of somebody else, the same consequence of criticizing them and creating distance and alienation. Because we know what the consequences are of the critic, right? Right. Or are you going to take a breath and make a different choice at that moment and be bigger than the critic? Because the, the shadow character is not who you are. But if you go to sleep, if you fall into unconsciousness and you identify, that's who I am. I'm bad. I'm critical. I'm judgmental. Then you're kind of lost and you can't really work with it, which is where most people live. Most people are not aware that this is going on. Right, right. I think for most people. Um, and so, Connie, I mean, this work is so incredibly important. And I think what feels, I mean, this is my anecdotal observation, is that a lot of people in Western culture want to bury their feelings of shadow. And especially, um, I lived in New York for a long time, but moved to California about nine years ago. And I, I, I sort of feel like, generally speaking, a lot of people um, oftentimes say something, but that's not actually what they're really feeling inside. And, and it almost feels like there's a suppression happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so are we on the outside looking at other people more aware of other people's shadows um, and unconscious behaviors than they are? Well, this is really hard to generalize, Yasmin. I mean, that's a very individual process. So you might be sensitive to a persona, someone, someone's false self, someone saying something that isn't fully authentic for them. And they may be unaware of that, or they may be aware of it and just making that choice. Hmm. And often, you know, in family systems, the false self is reinforced. Because people don't want to deal with the authentic feelings. And the whole system gets set up that way. So that, right? So that it isn't safe to express grief or anger or impatience or whatever it is. And so then it's reinforced throughout our lives. So um, I think part of the work is beginning to recognize that we can become authentic. We can connect to a deeper spiritual center in ourselves. But it's very hard to do if we're lost in the shadow, if we're unconscious of um, our internal experience, our internal dialogue and feelings. It's 
very hard to do that then. So people may meditate for hours or for years. And if they're not dealing with their shadow material, you know, in the spiritual world, we call this a spiritual bypass. Hmm. Because they may have some kind of a temporary spiritual stay without actually doing shadow work. Um, they're trying to bypass their ego development and just transcend it without working it out. Yeah, it's so fascinating because I think a lot of people on the spiritual path, um, you know, the more that I have kind of spent a lot of time with folks, I noticed that some of the most spiritual quote unquote people are some of the most judgmental. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, wow. Okay. Yes. There's uh, a lot of self-righteousness and the ego can become inflated. I'm so spiritual. I had a mystical experience. But what is in the shadow of that? Often it's inferiority. Hmm. So often what happens is the ego takes one side of a split and the other side goes into the shadow. So with superior, inferior, say. So I could feel superior, you know, on the yoga mat. And then I can go home and feel inferior to somebody else for whatever reason. Hmm. And I think that... Um, I'd like to kind of move into my new area. I'm applying this now to people in midlife and beyond. Oh, Connie, actually, before we move um, into that, I, I'd love to just double click a little bit on um, this one one piece of the family shadow that you mentioned earlier, the, the family uh -huh. shadow, because I think that is so important and so critical. Um, because I think it's it's a place where a lot of people started developing or their kind of unconscious behaviors, and especially um, with sibling and sibling shadows. Can we can we talk about that uh, first before we move on to midlife? Well, the personal shadow is embedded in the family shadow, which is embedded in a tribal shadow. Let's say a religious tribe or an intellectual tribe or a neighborhood or a community, which is embedded in whatever the next level is, a national shadow and a global shadow. So this is not only a personal issue. You know, a lot of what we see in the war now is enemy making based on shadow projection. Shadow projection is the basis of every war. So you know, in our families, there's also enemy making in most families. So um, in our families, there's often a persona, how the family presents itself, right, to the world, to the neighborhood, to the extended family. And then there are the secrets and the private world that's hidden. And it could be physical abuse or sexual abuse. It could be um, something not so serious, you know, maybe it could be a lie or it could be um, an addiction um, or some kind of trauma, a traumatic experience that nobody talks about. And so that whole family system then is carrying um, this burden together. And, you know, the poet Robert Bly had this beautiful metaphor. He said, um, until we're 20, we're stuffing everything into this long bag that we're dragging behind us. And after we're 20, we spend all of our time trying to get everything out of the bag, <laughs> right? 
So part of what we're trying to get out is family shadow, not just individual. And we're trying to look at the intergenerational issues. What was in your mother's shadow? What was in your father's shadow? And, you know, if you want to extend it, what was in their parents, your grandparents' shadows? And how did those issues get transmitted to you? So, for example, the Holocaust is an inherited intergenerational family shadow. So is slavery and racism, which is talked about so much now. That's an inherited family shadow issue. And so you can't only look at the individual out of context. You have to put him or her into the context of the family and the social group and the religious group. Um, If you belong to a church, there's a lot of shadow stuff that happens in religious communities. No, 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 right? Sex is bad or money is bad or whatever it is gets hidden. And so um, it's not a simple kind of reductionist program here. It's a profound understanding of the nature of being human and how to develop consciousness um, in tandem with our unconscious issues, how to develop um, spiritually, ethically, and morally, emotionally, cognitively, um, so that we're not leaving behind early emotional um, derailments or wounds or traumas, but we're actually clearing them out little by little as we move along and taking that awareness with us. You know, so many therapists are wounded healers. So many therapists have been, psychologists and psychiatrists have been, have have their own, our own stories of trauma and suffering that lead us often to want to help others. So one of the things that can come from shadow work is a great compassion and empathy for others suffering. So, Connie, I'd love to talk a little bit about your own journey of discovering your shadow and how that played out in your own life, and then um, some of the work that you've done in your own shadow work in midlife, and how and we can transition to um, your second book, The Inner Work of Age, even though I have so many more questions about the shadow. But for folks listening, you can check out uh, Romancing the Shadow for more on that. Um. I'm not sure I want to talk about my own shadow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can talk about what I discovered recently about my inner ageist. Okay. So I was sitting, um, because I don't feel like my early history, you know, I have 73 years of life experience. So I'm very focused on age right now and wanting to help people to orient toward this stage of life, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, to orient toward the possibilities and opportunities here. And that's really where my passion lies, not in my own history. So um, a number of years ago, I was sitting in a restaurant and having lunch alone, And a woman came in and sat next to me, and she was um, 
very old and very dirty. Her clothes were tattered. Her fingernails were dirty. Um, she ordered free samples of the food. And I noticed what I was saying to myself, just as I was suggesting for people who are beginning shadow work, I began to attune to my own inner voice. What is she doing here? She doesn't belong here. She can't afford it. She's not cleaned up. Um, she's old. She's poor. And I became alarmed at my own inner dialogue and began to work with it as a shadow character and began to recognize that this was the result, this part of me, after all of my um, social justice work on um, racism and homophobia and women's rights, after decades of um, political work, I saw that I was ageist and I was really horrified. And so I began to explore this part of myself as a shadow character that I called the inner ageist. And I began to trace back the roots of this part of myself and how it was internalized in my father's ageist comments about my grandmother, in the television shows that I watched when I grew up, and the movies that I watched, which were all patronizing and, um, you know, contemptuous of older people. And I began to see that ageism was this sea in which I swam all my life and that it had shaped my own feelings about growing older. And that when I saw this woman, what came up was my own denied fears of being old and being poor and being alone and being dependent. And I saw that these are personal and collective shadow issues around age in our culture. So I began to do research around um, aging and the unconscious or the shadow. And you know, Yasmin, I couldn't find anything. Wow. I looked everywhere and I couldn't find material on this. And eventually I found a psychologist at Yale who has spent her career studying how internalized ageism shapes our experience of old age, how our unconscious feelings and attitudes and beliefs actually shape our experience of growing old. And this was so confirming to me because what she was basically saying is the inner ageist shadow character affects our cardiac health, our mental health, our memory, our longevity, our will to live, all of it is being shaped by how we view aging. And that's when I knew I had to write The Inner Work of Age because, you know, 70 million baby boomers 
aging in an ageist society, this is a bad omen, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's how the book emerged out of my own experience of uncovering this shadow character. And uh, Connie, I'd love to dive into um, some of the concepts you talk about in the book, um, you know, the three portals of age and why they're so important. One of the things I realized was that there are no rites of passage to become an elder in Western culture, other than in the indigenous cultures, in, you know, white European postmodern culture, there are no rites of passage. We get a Medicare birthday card and we become a senior. But what does that mean? Really, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we've done our inner work. It doesn't mean that we're conscious human beings. It's chronological. It means we turn 65. And so that's very different from becoming an elder, which is a qualitative shift in awareness. An elder is a stage, not an age. So what I did is I built the book like a rite of passage to become an elder. And so it's filled with practices for that purpose. And the three portals are kind of an overall statement of what I believe we want to experience in order to become an elder. So we want to experience pure awareness. And by that, I mean some kind of connection to a spiritual center, some connection to something infinite. Um, we can call it God or spirit or soul or divine or higher self. I don't care what we call it, but that we need, I call it pure awareness because I come from the meditation tradition. So it means that we want some connection to the part of us in, internally in which the ego is not in control and something larger can be sensed. That's the first portal. And the second portal is shadow awareness. We want some kind of connection to our unconscious or to the psyche, to the imaginal world, whether it's through dreams, or creativity, or shadow work. We want to experience that we are larger than this ego. We are connected to something profound in the shadow. And the third portal is mortality awareness. Because I don't think we can become an elder if we're in denial of mortality. Um, we live in a shortened time horizon that has a kind of alchemical effect on us. If we really let that penetrate our awareness, it has this alchemical effect. It causes us to ask, okay, so little time left. What is most important to me now? What are the values that I carry now? What do I need to do or to give that only I can give? And what will I regret not doing when I'm on my deathbed? If we deny mortality, we're not going to ask these kinds of questions. 
And so for me, those three portals are kind of an overarching vision of qualities to become an elder. Wow, fascinating. Um, And I am curious about this review of your lived and unlived life. Um, What does that process look like for most people and why is that important? So there are a lot of practices in the book, and one of them is a kind of an extension of the traditional life review. So the traditional life review is um, sometimes happening spontaneously when you see older people telling their stories, sometimes repetitively, trying to digest their past experience and make meaning of it. We can do it intentionally um, by setting up, I I explain it in the book, it's kind of, we set up this graph and we walk through the decades of our lives and we recall the key events and people, um, the breakthroughs and the traumas and the losses, um, the wonderful learnings and magical encounters or synchronicities And we walk through our lives, whether it's, you know, 50 years or 60 years or 70 years or 80 years. And we begin to see patterns in our lives. And this is the ego's life review. This is the conscious life we've lived. And we might see some patterns of, you know, when when relationships broke down or um, patterns of things that we learned along the way or the kinds of people we met. Um, and then we begin to connect what was lived out in each decade with what was unlived. And so for, because remember the way the shadow was formed, if something is allowed to be expressed, something else is repressed. You know, so when we're growing up, if we're allowed to be artistic, but encouraged to be artistic, but we're not, we're forbidden from being athletic, then that gift and that dream is going to go into the shadow. Or we're encouraged to be academic, but it's thought to be trivial to play, to learn music. And so that dream or talent goes into the shadow. So we begin to connect what was lived out in the conscious life with what was repressed into the shadow in the unlived life. And as we do this decade by decade, we begin to see what was sacrificed into the unconscious. And then we have the choice whether we want to reclaim something from that now. So I have a friend I had lunch with this week, and he's, I think he's 75, and he said, I'm finally writing that novel that I could never afford to write. Hmm. And I'm just, I'm just like every day, I'm so happy. I'm just spending all day writing this novel. Um, my literary agent retired, and she's painting full time. And she said, I never knew I was an artist. I can't believe how much I'm loving this. 
So there are many, many stories in the book about people who discover what was buried in the shadow and how to express it now, how to take the time with our new longevity and these extra decades that we have now to um, maybe to give and receive forgiveness. You know, maybe to go to a friend or family member and talk about something that happened in the past. Or to find a creative gift that you could never afford to explore before. Um, Or to just express gratitude to one of your teachers. I just did that with my first Jungian analyst who's in her 90s now. And she was so touched to tell her what our work together meant to me. So the life review leads naturally into life repair. And it could be emotional repair, creative repair, spiritual repair. And so so those are also sections of the book. And Connie, I imagine that uh, one can actually do this work at any time in their life, right? Like looking back on the last couple decades or, or you know, for some few, few decades, right? Because I think I imagine that I, I find this work very important um, at retirement, especially since there's so much boredom and confusion uh, around that time. But I also think it could be an important um, thing to do even midlife uh, or coming on, on to midlife. Yes, I agree with you, and it's a different process. And here's why. You can stop at these different stages to digest your life experience. It's really important, but you're not facing mortality. Mm. And so without mortality awareness, it feels different. It has a different quality of urgency. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, Connie, what has uh, kind of changed um, since the pandemic um, when it comes to this work? Obviously, we've seen an increase uh, in mortality and probably just an increase in awareness that, you know, our our lives are are fragile. Um, Yeah, I'm curious if you have heard anything from folks who have interacted with this work um, since the pandemic and how that may have shifted your point of view. I think that's true. I think that many people became more aware of mortality in the last few years. And partly because they were endangered, partly because they experienced loss of loved ones, um, and partly because of the images in the media. And so I think at this moment, there's less denial of mortality But I would also predict that as people are coming out more now and no longer wearing masks and no longer so scared, it will go back into the shadow. Hmm. I predict, I think that within a year or two, people won't feel so vulnerable and they won't want to be thinking about that. Wow. Yeah. And the other thing that came up during the pandemic that I think is important is ageism became so visible in our housing situation. You know, when we saw the nursing homes and the housing segregation that people live in, age-segregated housing, and we saw a lot of nasty comments 
you know, from people saying, oh, let them die, they're old. I think there was a kind of awakening to, to systemic ageism that we also hadn't seen before. Yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of things became, um, what's the word, conscious during the right. pandemic. Right, <laughs> And nowhere to hide, nowhere to escape to right. or stuff, feelings, yeah. Right. Yeah, so I, I'm just so curious yeah, how the pandemic, I'm sure for many people, uh, force them to see their shadow in ways that they could have avoided for the, pretty much their entire life. You know, there is a phrase called liminality in the in the literature on transitions or rites of passage. The first step is letting go, and the second step is liminality, which means uncertainty, stepping into the unknown. And the third step is emerging, renewed. So for me, I saw the pandemic as an extended period of liminality. It's like, it's like the butterfly in the chrysalis. It's a mushy. It's no longer the caterpillar, and it's not yet the butterfly. It's a mush. Um, or the acrobat between trapezes. And I think that this liminal quality of the pandemic left people very anxious and that it was kind of underneath or behind a lot of the quarantine isolation and unknown about the future and, you know, urgency to get back to normal and not knowing what that is or whether that would ever happen again. Um, and so there's an analogy here, which is that when we go through transitions in later life, and there are many of them, retirement is a big one, those moments are also liminal. So retirement is like the pandemic in the sense that we, our roles fall away, our identities fall away. Our outworn personas fall away. And we don't know who we are anymore because we don't know what we do. And we've so identified with what we do, getting up and going to the office and performing that function, whether it's a CEO or a teacher, you know, or a nurse or a lawyer. We thought that was who we are. And that didn't happen for a lot of people in the pandemic. And then in later life, it also stops happening. And so that's an analogy that I noticed and um, I think can help people become familiar with identifying when they're experiencing that disorientation. It's a disorienting feeling. Mm, yeah, yeah. This uh, The uncertainty and the unknown um, I think has been something a lot of us have learned to adapt to, mm -hmm, <laughs> like having no mm -hmm. control. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it still feels like that's the case, you know, now, um, even though things are slowly, I wouldn't say returning back to normal, but we're feels like we're kind of, we've moved through the storm. <laughs> we're emerging again. We're emerging. And some people will be the same and some will be deeply changed. Mm. You know, if we allow this to change us, we'll emerge differently. 
Yeah. And Connie, uh, what sort of things have surprised you on this journey? And um, not just, you know, when it comes to age and the shadow, but um, your, your sort of whole journey when it comes to shadow work? Um, well, you know, I've been practicing meditation for about 50 years, and I've um, been very engaged with a number of spiritual communities. And I think part of what has surprised me is that spiritual development does not mean that the shadow is resolved. And so we've seen so many, quote, enlightened or awake spiritual teachers act out their shadows or Catholic priests act out their shadows. And there was a time when I was very surprised by that and kind of very disillusioned by that. I'm not anymore because it's been a long time now, but but it's taken um, me a lot of energy to understand what that was about. And, um, and so spiritual practice is not shadow work. It doesn't resolve our emotional issues or our deep unconscious issues. And shadow work is not, um, is not about transcendence. It's not the same as spiritual practice. So in my clinical work, when I was a therapist for 30 years, I always taught them together. I always taught meditation when I was teaching shadow work because we need that inner refuge I call pure awareness. We need that quiet mind to return to if we're going to face some of these difficult, disturbing issues that come up from the shadow. We need both of them together. And, you know, the subtitle of the new book is Shifting from Role to Soul. And what I mean by that, I borrowed that phrase from the spiritual teacher Ramdas. And it just kind of encapsulates for me um, the spiritual message that I'm trying to transmit and that I truly believe is the opportunity of aging. And that is that we can shift our identity from roles, from what we do, our success, or how we look, or what we achieve, to who we really are who we really, really are, right? Which is our essential spiritual nature. And again, whether we call it soul or spirit or higher self or God, I don't, doesn't matter to me. But we have this opportunity with contemplative practices, which are so available today, to make this shift in our identity from role to soul, and that's really what I hope people will take away from the book. Mm, beautiful, Connie. I, I love that. I was, as you were mentioning Ram Dass and talking about this, I, I was thinking about the quote. I think it's Ram Dass who said this, who said, if you think you're enlightened, try spending a week with your family, <laughs> which is... <laughs> he, he was always grounded. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's a such an incredible point, um, as I think a lot of folks are moving into the spiritual path, but yet 
Um, like you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of spiritual bypassing happening. Um, and I think a lot of maybe embarrassment about the darker sides of our nature, the things that we don't want people to see or to know about us. Uh, and I think what I love about your book is that it puts everything on the table. Um, you know, there's nowhere to hide. And I think it feels, or at least for me growing up in culture, that there was a desire to always like hide and put on your best self, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and it, it's so relaxing to sort of just say, yeah, and this is my shadow and here it is. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. It's just so deeply relaxing um, because there's, there's nothing left, right? There's, there's nothing hidden. It's just, it's all there. And, um, and I think, you know, something that I sort of was thinking about, you know, as we're in this uh, war um, is that, you know, we can all see ourselves in the evil of the world, right? And I think I think denying that is feels a bit un, unrealistic too. I think that we, we sort of tend to perceive ourselves to be like holier than thou and <laughs> so evolved or... Um, Yes. And and I think we all we all can we're all capable of I think all the atrocities. Yes. It's a really good point. I like what you're saying that you can kind of come out of hiding and relax about it. And when you notice that you're embarrassed or especially ashamed, there's a shadow there. And you can stay with it for a few minutes and and delve into it and explore it. Because it actually takes energy to hide and to repress material. And when you stop doing that, all that energy becomes available to you again. Right, right. And I think maybe people are also repressing or suppressing because they're afraid of, of how that truth might land with with the people around them. That's, yeah. You know, that's sort of my my understanding. And... And I think, you know, whose responsibility is it? Is it the person sharing this uncomfortable truth um, to sort of share it in a way that feels comfortable? Or is it the person receiving the truth who has to just hold whatever is the truth? Um, Well, this is so individual. Yeah. You know, this is very, um, when it's something that's really private and personal, this this is a very individual choice about how to tell a secret or how to express um, something that carries a stigma and, you know, concern about how the other person will react. This is such a personal choice. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, all the LGBTQ people who come out of the closet and get, you know, terrible rejection. So, Part of it is in the nature of a relationship and building enough trust and acceptance in a relationship to be able to do that. Like, let's say with your partner, if there's something you have to tell your partner that um, is scary or um, heavy or secretive in some way, it's for each person to decide how to do that. I mean, as a clinician, I would say, you know, there are ground rules for doing that, but that's not what we're talking about now. We're talking more about how liberating it is to be who we really are. Right. To be fully authentic, to trust ourselves, to know ourselves, and um, 
you know, for me to just to live in my spiritual nature and let go of all the rules that I've carried all these years. Mm, I love that. Yeah, that's so liberating. Uh, so Connie, um, this has been so lovely. What is your main uh, takeaway here? Uh, maybe a call to action for people listening. Um, what do you want to tell our listeners about their well-being, wellness when it comes to this work? You know, um, people have been asking me, I've been teaching a lot of workshops online and they've been asking for follow-up. So there are now more than 30 circles of people reading the inner work of age together and doing the practices together and aging in community. And so if you read the book or pick it up and feel that you want to do it with other people, that you want to explore the ideas and um, form and make some friendships and some bonds and form a community around aging, you can shoot me an email at Connie Zweig, Z-W-E-I-G, at gmail.com. Put Wisdom Circle in the subject line, and I will connect you to other people to read the book together. These are free, and they're leaderless, and um, there are new ones forming all the time. So that's what I'm offering. Please don't email me with your whole life story. <laughs> I've got you know, too many emails for that. But if you're interested in a wisdom circle, please let me know. Amazing. Amazing. When we'll include that, um, the link to your book uh, in the show notes as well. And uh, are there any other resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, uh, your, your website, like any other maybe social media handles? Um, you can find me at conniezweig.com. And my workshops are always changing, and they're listed there. I'll be um, hosting a big three-day conference around the themes of the book in December, and that will be listed on ConnieZweig.com. Um, I'm on, on Facebook. I'm Dr. Connie Zweig. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to connecting with folks. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Connie. This was uh, so incredible. And frankly, um, your book, uh, Romancing the Shadow, for me, was one of the, the most important books I've read in a long time. So I, I encourage folks to read that. And of course, The Inner Work of Age. Uh, so for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about The Inner Work of Age and also Shadow Work with Dr. Connie Zweig. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.